Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor serves as the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And remember, the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Our special guest today will be Dr. Rafael Rosario, a palliative care and hospice care medicine uh, based in Indianapolis to talk about what does really good Catholic hospice and palliative care look like. But before that, Andrew has some medicine news for us. I I found a couple interesting articles recently that have been coming out that I wanted to share with the listeners. And the first one has to do with urinary tract infections. I suspect that these are things that might be familiar to some of our listeners. And this is a way to prevent UTIs, uh, which may make sense to a lot of people. But in the JAMA, Internal Medicine Journal, from October of 2018, they published a paper that concluded that if a woman drinks... 1.5 liters of water per day, at least 1.5 liters of water per day, her risk of UTIs gets cut in half. Wow. No pills, no other uh, risk factors considered. This was kind of taking all comers. And uh, I found that to be amazing because there are so many women who suffer from UTIs, both occasionally and regularly. And if you could cut that number in half, I think it's something that everyone would love to do and no pill or office visit required. Just have to run water through the plumbing. I think it is a, a tough thing to do, though, because, you know, many Americans, I think, struggle with maintaining adequate hydration, especially if they're living a busy life. I know a lot of the, the women I talk to who might be, you know, vulnerable or susceptible to urinary tract infections Frequently, as they are getting older, they also suffer with urinary incontinence symptoms, especially if they've had children before. And so there's a lot of people who intentionally don't drink enough water because they don't want to be running to the bathroom so frequently. Uh, sure. However, it, it would be, I think, superior to be making sure that you're having well-flushed ureters and bladder and not having urinary tract infections because that could land you in the hospital. And if you stay well hydrated, you'll feel better as well. Do you recommend that for your patients who've had repeated UTIs? I'm going to start now. We, we always in general say, you know, drink a bunch of water. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's no good consensus on how much is uh, enough or how much I, I'd say it'd be hard to have too much water, although it's possible. But this article kind of quantified it, and they said about a liter and a half a day more than what they were doing previously. Um, so if you are getting UTIs three times a year and you're drinking X amount of water, if you drink just another couple water bottles a day, you're going to cut those in half over the following so year. So it's one and a half liters over your current level, mm-hmm. not one and a half liters total. Precisely. Got it. Precisely. And so that, I thought that was an interesting article that hopefully people could take home and make some some different decisions potentially. The second one I found was, uh, you know, not, not shocking, but something that I think is worth talking about. It harkened back to one of my favorite USPSTF recommendations about Uh, fractures and fall prevention related to vitamin D. And so this is a study that came out uh, in the fall of 2018 where it was a a meta-analysis is what we call it, where it looks at all the studies that have been done, all randomized controlled studies, and takes all of their data and tries to spit out a consensus answer. And so the the data was extracted from several famous databases that... uh, medical folks would refer to PubMed, uh, Cochrane Central, Embase. These are our famous databases. And so they looked at 81 randomized controlled trials, and that accounted for over 53,000 people in these studies. And the, the question was, is how good is vitamin D at preventing fractures and falls, especially in, in seniors. Okay, Andrew, how good is it at preventing fractures in seniors? Well, to get to the punchline, I'm afraid it looks like it might not do anything at all. Wow. And so that is a, a could be a bit of a game changer because the USPSTF says that we should do it, as we, we addressed in a previous episode. And uh, anecdotally, I found a lot of people who really like supplementing vitamin D However, I've, I've always wondered, and I, and I would uh, welcome people to, to provide examples, I have yet to find someone 
who's got a normal vitamin D level unless they're taking supplements. I've never seen someone who's got a normal level, which begs the question, how did we actually define what normal vitamin D is? Um, is it something that is really accurately described as normal or abnormal? Or if everyone's low, you know, what does that even mean? And, and we always thought whether they were high or low, giving them vitamin D would help. And, and it turns out that that may not be the case. So this definitely calls into question my mind, you know, what, what are we supposed to do in the future? And I, I hope that this leads to new, brand new studies, hopefully, that we can look prospectively if you give people vitamin D and if you don't, rather than looking retrospectively. But I would say it's less than a ringing endorsement of vitamin D um, that you'll be getting from myself. That's a really good point, but there's a study that I've quoted many times to patients when they ask about sunlight and vitamin D. It was one done in Hawaii with surfers who got an average of 29 hours of direct sunlight exposure a week. And half of this group of dozens of surfers was, quote, vitamin D deficient. So if they're getting that much sun exposure and they're still deficient, I think there's a problem with what we believe are normal levels. Yeah, it begs the question, is that... Is normal even normal, or are we really hoping for, you know, extra normal or super levels of vitamin D? And and it turns out the super levels might not help prevent fractures. Next, we move on to uh, somewhat of a somber movie uh, that I saw this last weekend. The movie uh, Gosnell, or the full title is Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. It was released in uh, 673 theaters on the weekend of October 12th. And uh, it was the number one viewed independent movie during that uh, opening weekend and the number five viewed movie by numbers of people who saw movies uh, the weekend of October 12th. And it's quite a, it's kind of a gut punch movie. It's not shown horrifically. And this is about the abortionist Kermit Gosnell, who was convicted of uh, murdering three infants that were born early, and then he snipped their spinal cord just beneath the skull, uh, as well as the for manslaughter of uh, one of his patients, and a number of other charges, like not recognizing the 24-hour waiting rule law in uh, Pennsylvania, and, and not reporting certain things he was supposed to report. But this movie... Over half of the dialogue is taken verbatim from the court records. Wow. And shows how there was a complete media blackout on this until some bloggers started to call out the media for not covering it. And then there finally was coverage. But the same thing is going on even today where where theaters, where this is bringing in money as their number five or six show out of 18 to 30 screens, they're still pulling the movie early. And many places are not advertising it. I talked to someone in Philadelphia last week who went to see it, and he said you wouldn't know it was being shown because none of the posters outside or inside the theater mentioned it. Wow. But when you went there, it was being shown. It, it There's no gore in it, and it is obviously not an in-your-face uh, pro-life or pro-abortion movie. It's just the facts, and it goes through the investigative process as to how a pro-choice you know, assistant DA came to prosecute it with the help of a Catholic, but it doesn't say how Catholic in belief or action he was. A detective stumbles onto these, these, these infanticide going on, as well as late-term abortions, when they're looking at a narcotics bust. Apparently, this doctor was also writing and profiting from writing uh, many narcotics prescriptions to people who didn't need them medically but were using them to abuse them. Wow. Now, a movie like this, is this something that you would you would feel comfortable taking your children to? Or what ages would you recommend for this time? Probably 16 and up. 16 you know, we up. debated whether or not to take our 12-year-old boys to it. And after seeing it, we're very glad we didn't. Okay. It was very, I mean, it was heavy for me. My wife kept looking at me and thinking, are you going to make it through this movie? It was just profound. I mean, at one point during the trial, they bring up, in another abortionist who wants to show that the way Gosnell practices abortion is not what she considers the standard of care. You know, they're, they're very clean. They use sterilized instruments, unlike in his office. Wow. And uh, they would never allow a child to be born alive. They always make sure that they've drained the brain out of the skull in any larger babies before 
passing them through and out into the world. My word. And it just makes you sick. It, it, it did make me it did make me ill. Uh, and this abortionist, you know, said, yeah, I've done about 30,000 of these so far. Wow. It, to which the uh, defense uh, attorney says, well, it sounds like what you're doing there, pulling the brains out of the skull just before passing them through, doesn't sound a whole lot different from what Dr. Gosnell did in snipping the spinal cord just the few seconds after it's out of the birth canal. <laughs> That's but, not from the mouths of babes, but... You know, there is truth to that. A very telling scene was when they showed each of the jurors the pictures of baby A. One of the clinic workers had actually snapped a picture of this very large, virtually full-term baby who had had its spinal cord snipped. And as they're showing it to the jurors, you can see visibly that they are moved by this. And at that point, you know how the case is going to turn out because they have seen what abortion really is. Although in the movie, many times they keep saying, remember, this case is not about abortion. Wow. I mean, there's so many times that's emphasized among the players in it. Um, but one, the, the point at which I almost cried was when I realized the date the verdict was given. The was verdict that? was given on a May 13th. Really? What does that date mean for Catholics? May 13th's a big day because it is the... It's the Fatima visions started on a May 13th. So we often say that um, pro-life victories often seem to happen on days with certain significance, especially re- related to dates when Catholics honor Mary, uh, which we do on that date. I know they say it's not about abortion, but just imagine the cognitive dissidence that, you know, in inside the birth canal and outside a matter of seconds makes all the difference. And and I, I always think back to, you know, other, other folks who can commit atrocities against humanity. They go home and they have a normal life and then they go to work and do things like that. It's just, it's incredible. It's truly amazing. And the character of Gosnell himself, very eerie and creepy. It's just, um, I had no idea what his personality was going to be like, but from what I've read, the actor cop captured it spot on. Wow. So Gosnell, I do recommend seeing it. You will be better informed than you ever were, but don't. I wouldn't take a child under 16, even gotcha. though it's rated PG-13. And finally, before our break, our medical trivia question of the day, once again from the world of Star Trek medicine. In the 1986 movie Star Trek The Voyage Home, the crew of the Starship Enterprise finds itself back in 20th century San Francisco. While trying to rescue a crew member from Mercy Hospital in San Francisco, Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy, who are both described as 20th century doctors, had the following conversation on their way trying to get Mr. Chekhov, who was in an operating room. Kirk says, out of the way. And there's a policeman who says, sorry, doctor, I have strict orders. And then the, quote, patient on the gurney moans in pain. And Dr. McCoy says, my God, man, do you want an acute case on your hands? This woman has immediate postprandial upper abdominal distension. Now get out of the way. Get out of the way. They enter the operating room and Kirk says to McCoy, what did you say she has? So that's my question to you. What did Dr. McCoy say she has? Immediate postprandial upper abdominal distension. What is that? How would you refer to it? You're going to have to wait because we're going to take a break and then break off to Dr. Rafael Rosario to talk about palliative and hospice care. Stay tuned for more on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our guest interview today on Dr. Doctor. We're going to talk about Catholic views of palliative and hospice care. What does good care look like at the end of life or or with intense suffering? And our expert today is Dr. Rafael Rosario. He is a board-certified internist and palliative care and hospice care physician from Indianapolis. He went to medical school at Wright State School of Medicine in Ohio. He did his uh, residency at St. Vincent Hospital in uh, Indianapolis. And he is an assistant professor of medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine and also is on staff at the Indiana, Indianapolis VA Medical Center. Raphael, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, I thought I would start off with a personal anecdote to try to make this personal and to help our listeners identify with a situation they might 
uh, encounter in their own lives. Uh, within the last week, I was called emergently by my uh, father's uh, nursing home place where he lives. He's actually in assisted living. He was having extreme difficulty breathing, and I'm his uh, designated uh, power of attorney to make medical decisions for him. And we had to make the decision whether or not to take him to the hospital. And I had talked to him in the past. He had filled out paperwork on his uh, wishes. And I'm a physician who is at least somewhat conversant in, in what goes on medically in these situations. And I found it very challenging in the moment to make decisions for the benefit of my dad. So if it's hard for me with all the benefits I have, it's, so, it's got to be so much harder for our listeners. Raphael, how can we help direct our listeners to make you know, the best decisions they can make in situations like this? Sure. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and a little disconcerting, maybe. Here you are, you know, you, as you mentioned, having this medical knowledge and having tried to be as prepared as possible, by, you know, perhaps by participating in conversations with your father and, and by your father having had these wishes documented and still the medical decision-making isn't always easy or straightforward. And, and I think, honestly, that would be what I would offer to listeners is basically two things, encouragement to have ongoing, challenging, uh, what-if scenario conversations regarding the end of life or serious illness, even not, even not end of life. So encouragement and awareness, basically, that these conversations and any documents that result from them, while exceedingly helpful, don't necessarily represent completion of all future health-related questions or decisions. Their, their conversations and the value of having a health, a designated healthcare representative in family members or in a friend who knows and has a good sense of one's wishes and values helps, not perfectly, but helps set the stage to be able to make in-the-moment decisions that involve new or changing medical scenarios and, and to do so hopefully in alignment with what a patient's wishes or values or, or faith tradition are. That's a really good point that the written document is not the final word. I think in our culture, when we see something in writing, we tend to think that's, that's what counts, you know, sola scriptura. And but, a lot of people pay for lawyers to write these things, so they think that, okay, I'm taken care of now. We've got that filed away somewhere. Well, and I, I, want, I want to underscore, you know, the value is, is it's nice to have the document. I don't want to minimize that at all, but the bigger benefit, in my opinion, is the conversation and what, what, uh, what is that document completion rooted in um, and it's, I think, imperative for there to be somebody who knows the person, who knows their loved one, for somebody to have a surrogate decision maker in the event that they can't make their own decisions because things change all the time. And because, unfortunately, healthcare, I think, uh, as you mentioned, relies on, well, this is what this says, so this must be what we do, you know, instead of sort of pressing pause, as I think is always important and identifying whether the circumstances, the clinical scenario, and what's written on the form are still appropriate and valid. And in my own case, I got to ask my dad uh, briefly, Dad, you know, you, you may die if you don't go to the hospital now. Your wishes said you didn't necessarily want to go to the hospital, but would you like to go now? And he said yes. And even though I had the legal right to make the decision for him, even though he was uh, conscious, um, I at least got to confirm he changed his mind from what was in that document. Exactly. Exactly how, right. Raphael, how often do you see, you know, situations arise where the the surrogate decision maker is struggling looking at the document and the clinical situation? Do you, do you find those in conflict often or do you find that they're that they usually come come to the same conclusion? I, I mean, it depends, of course, on the clinical situation. But what I what I do see often, and what uh, what I empathize with, is the is the feeling, right? Well, we talked about this, and here's this form, a living will, or a post form, or what have you, and that's nice. Um, but if the form doesn't cover the new unexpected uh, situation, health situation, that requires sort of a different conversation. Or requires just a verification, as, as I think Tom just mentioned, you know, hey, this is happening, this is something that's potentially reversible. We are not necessarily trying to verify that everything on the form get changed, but this is maybe a potentially reversible situation with IV antibiotics and a stay in the hospital for urinary tract infection to maybe try to clear a delirious phase. I think it warrants just the ability to have the conversation, and I find that surrogates 
struggle immensely if something on the form says one thing, but there's a clinical scenario that sort of causes that into question, and then the medical team are asking the surrogate who may not have had that specific conversation, right, with, uh, with the person that they're in charge of making decisions for. And so I find that very difficult, which is why I say, I, f- I find that they see that it's very difficult, which is why I say that it's invaluable to kind of know what the context of the conversations with the patient have been to be able to better make sort of in-the-moment decisions. Would, would you say that it's important for everyone to have a surrogate decision maker? Absolutely. I think, I think um, at, the, at the recent uh, end-of-life CMA forum, there was, I can't remember, maybe it was uh, Dr. Sawicki. Um, one of them mentioned something that really kind of struck with me, and, and basically uh, they were talking about advanced directives, but a portion of that is sort of uh, to assign decision-maker. And the thing that stuck in my, uh, in my head and I think is very true is uh, the quote to the effect of, I don't have advanced directives because I have a chronic illness or a terminal illness. I have advanced directives because I have a family. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom in, it's impossible to anticipate every scenario, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in sort of having the conversation, A, documenting what can be documented, B, and making sure that families, uh, that the family knows what one's wishes are so that there's less chance of, you know, there's never zero chance, but there's less chance of family conflict, which, which uh, emotions happen, right? And, and conflict <laughs> happens, and that can happen at the end of life, too. And, and just kind of a follow-up to that, as, as people are identifying someone to make decisions for them, is there a, a standard way to do that where we have a, a regimented next-of-kin protocol, or how, how would you recommend our listeners identifying the best person to serve that role for them? Well, I, I think that's a great question, and, and, you know, without trying to back out of the question, I think it depends on who the person feels comfortable with, and, and basically who do they feel comfortable in naming as a surrogate decision-maker in the event that they themselves should not be able to make, you know, those healthcare care decisions, who do they feel comfortable with that will have the best chance of honoring the spirit, right, of, of their wishes and their values? And I think that I, I find people struggle when they worry, well, if I don't name this person and this person because, you know, they're my children, there's going to be bad feelings, but I really don't know if they're best suited, and I really think that so-and-so is going to be better. And so it, it, is, it is challenging, and in those situations sometimes – you know, we'll recommend in writing, this is my intent. I'd like to name my sister first uh, because we've had the most conversations or she knows my wishes the most. And if she's unavailable, if she's unavailable you know, my secondary person are going to be my children or something like that. I think delineating that, having the conversations can really be helpful, not only for the patient, but for the family as well. Raphael, some definitions. I have heard, even as a physician, from different physicians, different definitions for what palliative care and hospice care mean. Some think they're the same thing. Some say they're different. Can you please enlighten us? Sure, I'll try. I I think, you know, definitions that are found uh, online can be helpful, and, and, and they're true. I find that palliative medicine, basically the best way that I find to describe it to patients is an extra layer of support. It's a specialized medical care, not to say that other people can't also provide it, but a specialized team, specialized medical care for people with serious illness to uh, focus on relief of pain and symptoms. Not that other people can't do that, but to have extra focus on those pain and symptoms and importantly, to focus on the stress and the storm of a serious uh, or terminal illness or life-limiting or life-threatening disease. The goal, as always, should be to um, improve where possible the quality of life for both the patients and the families, but in the context of the clinical scenario, to live as comfortably and as fully as the clinical, as is possible with the clinical scenario. And it's provided by a team of people working together with uh, the patient's other physicians, ideally, to communicate with them to provide this extra layer of clinical, symptom, uh, emotional uh, support. And it's given at any stage, uh, at any age, right, in, in a serious illness a trajectory. And it can be, and can be and should be provided together uh, with curative treatment. So, that, so that's good. So it's not necessarily with a terminal condition or an end of life. It, I, I, guess, I guess one can group it in that area only because, 
with a terminal condition and at the end of life, symptoms tend to be more problematic. Yes. Uh, but it ne- it need not be that, correct. So like out of 100%, what percent of the time do you think you are brought in on a case that is not a, a terminal uh, condition? Well, good question. Uh, that is not a terminal condition, meaning their prognosis is... They're, not, uh, they're probably not likely to die in the next year. Yeah, I would say in palliative medicine, close to 40, 50% of the time. Wow, oh, okay. that's great. And uh, kind of a, another way to get at that, too, for our listeners, who would be a, a bad candidate for palliative care? Is there somebody that we, we would turn kind of turn away and say, oh, this, you're really not looking for this? Well, I, I mean, in honesty, I don't know that there's a bad candidate, but there are definitely people for whom there may not be much help that a palliative care team can provide. I mean, if somebody's symptoms are relatively controlled, and certainly if they don't have, you know, much stress with their managing their illness, or if, you know, if the illness itself is, is, is more of a chronic you know, likely to live for decades. I mean, palliative care in that scenario might get involved to try to help with the symptom or to, to might to, to provide support or to connect, you know, with the community, but not necessarily have uh, a long-term relationship. I, I find palliative care to be more helpful in the scenario where somebody isn't imminently dying and may not be hospice eligible. Uh, we can talk about that in a moment, but but have a collection of medical issues or advanced enough organ failure or malignancy that if the disease runs its normal course, there's concern that there's going to be ongoing decline, ongoing clinical deterioration, and the prognosis could be, you know, on the order of two to three years with the expectation that things are going to continue to decline, symptoms are going to be problematic, you know, emotional issues, support issues, coordination issues with multiple uh, physicians. And so that's where I find that palliative care does its best uh, work, if you will. So it w- it would be a lot more for people who are are saying we don't want to necessarily go with the full speed ahead, another round of chemotherapy, another experimental treatment, and more focus on the disease process, still treating the disease, but focusing more on making sure that they have a good comfort level, they're, they're as functional as they can be, rather than going you know, above and beyond to cure a disease. Is that correct? I think, yeah, I think that's true. And I think you know, to, to add to that, um, even if they haven't decided that that's what the one they want to do, but they worry or they wonder, you know, is, is what do I think about this uh, third, fourth-line treatment in the scope of, you know, what I was able to do three months ago, I can't do now. You know, when treatment options are uncertain, when prognosis is uncertain, when emotional or physical symptoms are problematic, when patients or families, you know, request what the medical establishment might deem as, quote-unquote, futile, uh, if there's poor support, if there's a need for, you know, support for psychological or spiritual distress, all of these things, you know, cluster of hospital admissions, you know, three times in a in a two-month period in somebody who's rapidly declining. I think all of those are good, um, meaty, if you will, palliative care consults where hopefully the collective palliative care team, in addition with the other clinical providers, can make sense of the situation, make Uh, medical decision-making that are in line with what somebody values and wishes in the context of their serious illness. It's time to take a break, but we'll be back with Raphael's explanation of what hospice care is after the break. We're back with the next segment of our interview with Dr. Raphael Rosario about palliative care and hospice care. Raphael, please tell us now, after discussing palliative care, what is hospice care and how does that differ? Sure. I, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, um, but it does sometimes feel to me that hospice is more of a one-size-fit-all. And I, I don't want listeners who are familiar with hospice to cringe. I'll try to clarify. But, but basically, hospice and palliative care are philosophically aligned. And uh, often, sometimes they're conflated with one another, but they are different in discharge and in definition. Hospice is a Medicare benefit, and it's quite regulated as such. It makes the consideration, because of this regulation and the reimbursement structure, it makes consideration of the necessary latitude regarding, you know, concurrent treatments uh, based on an individual's medical scenario less likely, uh, less successful. And, And as I said, without getting lost in the weeds, I think it's based on how it was set up, on its reimbursement structure, 
And so because of that, it's always felt more of a, you know, if it doesn't fit, if I still want to get blood transfusions because they're helping me, if I haven't decided to forego all disease-modifying therapy with chemotherapy, often a hospice agency will say less because they disagree with someone's decision and more because of the reimbursement way that it's structured. Often they'll say, well, that's fine. We'll talk to you again after you're completed with your disease-modifying therapy. Just to clarify, do you pretty much have to stop all of your medications to be on hospice? Sometimes it it can feel that way to people, and I won't I won't try to sugarcoat and say that sometimes a well-intentioned clinician, be it a physician or a nurse, you know, with the auspices of trying to make someone more comfortable and reduce their pill burden, says, "Oh, you don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this." I think a more appropriate message is that if said medication is burdensome, is not really helping, then it might be appropriate not to take the, the uh, blood pressure medicine if somebody's losing weight, not to take the cholesterol medicine, etc. But it's, I think it is wrong for a hospice agency to kind of come in and say, well, you don't need this, you don't need this, you don't need this, especially if somebody desires to continue taking it. And so uh, what I didn't say specifically, and, and maybe the listeners already know, hospice is, you know, this specialized medical care, not unlike palliative care, but it's delivered uh, with patients who have serious illness, and the difference is that it's reserved for patients with a prognosis of six months or less, and typically not, I won't say 100% of the time, the VA does a good job of, of providing it with curative treatment, oh. but typically hospice is not uh, provided along with curative treatment, and, and for, for, for that reason, I find that it's a tough decision for some to sort of feel like they're giving up something, right, or giving up the idea of, well, what if in a couple of weeks I change my mind? Um, and so that's that's the difference. I don't know if I if I So that addresses the question of, you know, many people might not want aggressive medical treatment, yet they have the hard decision of pulling the trigger for hospice. Is it because they feel like they're turning their back on hope for cure? I I think so. I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I feel I see often, you know, the wheels turning in patients and also in, in family members as they struggle. You know, hospice has this big H, just the way that death has this big D and cancer <laughs> has this big C. Yes. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the worry that a patient might have, like, what is my family thinking? Do they feel like I'm giving up? You know, a family member, uh, you know, what does a good family member do? A good family member, by society standards, sort of always fights and says, no, you know, it's going to be fine and I want you to keep going. And so sometimes the idea of a less is more approach, even if it might might be appropriate, feels squishy and feels difficult, especially if somebody's previous, you know, historical narrative for months has been going to the doctor and, you know, getting labs and getting studies and getting chemo and getting radiation. It can feel, I think, very much like this abrupt change. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I would describe it, that it might be very appropriate in, you know, uh, philosophically for somebody's wishes and also practically for the support that they can provide at home, but it might not feel like the best fit if somebody is struggling with the notion that things are changing. Raphael, one one kind of follow-up clarifying question with their uh, those topics. Would it be appropriate for somebody to just stay on palliative care until death? Do they have to make the jump to hospice, or is that a natural progression of palliative care? Well, it's a great question, and I think for some, it is a natural progression. I think for many people, the idea slowly over time, whether it's liver, heart, kidney failure, you know, advanced disease, or whether it's neurological deterioration or whether it's malignancy, I think for many, a transition from doing, you know, in a palliative care setting, realizing that the options for palliative care become a little bit more contracted over time both because they might not be a candidate for said treatments or the patient or the family themselves might say, you know what, this feels much more burdensome than beneficial to put them through X again. Um, and so for some, I think it is a natural transition uh, for many who say, you know what, I don't want to, uh, I don't want death to come quickly, but if it comes and when it comes, I would like to make the most of my time. I'd like to be with my family. I'd like to be at home if home is possible. Um, and so I think for some it is a natural progression, but there are many, many people who we care for, who struggle immensely with the idea of hospice because they've had a negative experience or because they've heard something that we're having a hard, you know, hard time 
disavowing them of or they're worried that it's just going to be morphine and Ativan. And unfortunately, there are stories where, you know, abuses or misuses have happened. And so when, when that's the case, to answer your question directly, people don't have to go on hospice. That's never a requirement, and that no one should ever be pushed. And in that circumstance, what we would do is to try to do, uh, you know, in, in, in my mind anyway, hospice-like support, whether it's symptom control, you know, getting durable medical equipment, um, if that can help their, their quality of life and help them suffer less, uh, offer support for the family. So that's how I would answer it. Not everybody progresses to hospice. Certainly no one is required to do that. So I've heard some people use the phrase, letting nature take its course. Would that be an accurate kind of euphemism or analogy for making the transition to hospice? Maybe. I, I, I think, you know, the way that maybe for some, I think that's absolutely, you know, probably accurate. I've heard patients and family use those words. Um, and maybe for some, that's what hospice means to them, just letting things go as they're going to go and not not accelerating it and not obstructing whatever the disease process and then and the course is. In general, I think the philosophy of many with a prognosis of six months or less is to focus on what they might find more important with the frame of a limited prognosis, you know, other than appointments and burdensome uh, and sometimes ineffective interventions. But that said, there are many for whom the prognostic eligibility um, might make them eligible for hospice. I mean, maybe all the doctors are worried that it's six months or less, but whose personal, personal treatment preferences or ongoing disease treatments make the action of making the hospice referral not a good fit. And some people, I think, will, will relate to sort of uh, let nature take its course, and other people will, uh, will, will not appreciate that very much. So it just depends. And another phrase that is used throughout the culture, and a lot of adult children think that when they ask for this, for their parents are doing their best, they ask, oh, I want dad to have comfort care. What does comfort sure. care mean? So I think you guys, are, you guys are hitting with the heavy questions, which is good. It's a great question, right? And I think that that is exactly the question and the answer. What is comfort care? What is it? What do people mean, for example, when a patient uses it, when a family member uses it, when an ICU clinician uses it? There's such a wide range of meaning and intention. It depends on who speaks it, and it's often impossible to be sure what people, you know, to be sure that people are talking on the same plane. So I feel that clarity of definition is, is paramount. I work in this field, and I see it, and, and maybe I'm also guilty of it at times. I worry that it's easy for healthcare. Uh, clinicians to assume what somebody might mean when they say comfort care, comfort measures, or comfort measures only. Many automatically might link it to DNR, do not resuscitate, or DNI, do not intubate, but that isn't necessarily what people who use it might mean. It might very well be that, but it may not be. So pending a clear understanding of what somebody, a patient, a patient's family, a clinician, means when they use it, it could be that it's a good enough answer for them and clarifying what they mean doesn't evoke angst with the family, but I would definitely not say that it means the same thing for all who, who say it. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're able to come on the show and talk to us, is your role is very unique, especially as an authentically Catholic physician working in this space. I'm sure you've seen, and I've, I've been painfully aware in, in my training at times when hospice and palliative care are not done in a good way. I've seen and heard even sometimes other Catholics advocating for the patient being made unconscious um, to avoid pain and even, you know, kind of euthanasia light, which may be going on some places. You know, what in your, in your practice, how would you describe and, and what do you see as authentically Catholic palliative and hospice care? Sure. I think um, for listeners who, who might want to read a little bit more, I, I like the way that the Supportive Care Coalition website kind of maps things out in general. I think they do a nice job of trying to flush that question out. Supportive Care Coalition website does a nice job of that. Basically, I would answer the question by saying that, as, as many people know, people living with serious illness need more uh, than just medical care. I think this is kind of outlined on the, on the website. They need support, right, for the emotional, the social, the relational, the cultural, the, the spiritual needs that kind of happen. And so the specialized care delivered by a team can help them do that, even when cure is no longer possible. And I think that as Catholics, palliative care can and should fit seamlessly with our calling to minister to the multiple layers of needs that patients and families face, just as Jesus embodied. 
and to see and to care for the whole person, you know, body, mind, and spirit, to affirm the person's worth and to honor their narrative, to trumpet their dignity, no matter how frail or deconditioned or neurologically devastated, you know, they might be. And I liked, I think I got this from their website, you know, the last three popes have supported palliative care, and Pope Francis most recently um, has mentioned, you know, that it's an expression of the properly human attitude of taking care of another, especially of those who suffer, and it bears witness that the human person is always precious, even if marked by age and sickness. Um, so I think that, you know, as a specialty, it aims to dignify the patient, their worth, their narrative, their values, and to align the medical treatment and the context of their situation with the values and goals. Um, and that's how I would answer it. Raphael, that's a great answer. We're going to take one more break, and we're going to get bonus overtime with Raphael with more on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association coming back to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we have the answer to the trivia question. Tom, take it away. Back to Star Trek, and in this question that I pose, Dr. McCoy says to the police officer, this woman has immediate postprandial upper abdominal distension. Now get out of the way. And then Captain Kirk says, what did you just say she had? And if we were to put it into modern medical lingo, stomach cramps, bloating, she ate too much, abdominal gas. So immediate, he really meant to say acute. It happened, you know, suddenly. Postprandial, that just means after a meal. Upper abdominal, that's where the stomach sits. Distension, it got big. And the way that our intestines and stomach are wired, they don't feel pain. They, if you cut through it with a knife, you wouldn't feel it. If you burn it with a flame, it wouldn't feel it. But if it gets bigger like a balloon, it hurts a lot. So all she had were stomach cramps from her stomach getting too big too fast. D did it work for Captain Kirk? Did they get through? They got through. They rescued Chekhov from a guy who wanted to drill a hole into his uh, dural uh, layer and relief pressure from a bleed. So yes, Chekhov reunited. They got the whales back off of back on the earth and yeah, it was it was a weird episode, but fun nevertheless for Trekkies. But enough of that. Let's go back to our guest in overtime, Rafael Rosario. Rafael, I think you have some stories that can illustrate and, and contrast hospice and palliative care. Sure. I, I, I think stories are are what we all resonate with and and can relate to. And most recently, last week, um, there was a 70-year-old male with um, a history of head and neck cancer. He'd had a total laryngectomy, so he wrote on a whiteboard. So laryngectomy um, meaning for our audience? So they removed, because of his head and neck cancer, they removed uh, basically his voice box, uh, his larynx, his voice box. And so he wasn't able to communicate verbally, but he could write and he could gesture uh, cognitively, fully intact. And uh, he had, uh, because of the treatment that he received for that, he um, had been struggling with aplastic anemia, which is basically the bone marrow's failure. And so as a result of that, his white blood cell count, his ability to, um, to protect himself from infection was just decimated, and he was requiring antibiotics. He was having fevers in spite of them. His red blood cell count was very low. He's requiring red blood cell um, uh, transfusions. And his platelets, the, the little pieces that kind of help us clot, um, were very, very low. So the, the point of this message is that he was in the hospital. He was getting all this support, and he was getting medication to try to see if this aplastic anemia was going to be um, not resolved, but whether we could temporize things for him. Uh, his family lived an hour away, and the palliative care team was involved and made efforts to bring the family to have conversations to uh, painstakingly sit in the room with him and have him write, you know, things out as we would answer questions. And he would, he would write stuff, you know, along the lines of, I feel my days are numbered. Uh, I feel useless. Um, I'm doing everything the doctors are telling me, but I don't feel better. And he came on his own. He knew this inherently, but we were also able to flush out the, the concern with the hematologist that his symptoms were progressing in spite of what was happening, and we were worried not that we were going to stop the support of the blood transfusions or the antibiotics or the fluids. We weren't talking about doing that, but we did begin to talk about what, if time is getting shorter, which we worried that it was, 
what would be most important to him. And he mentioned, and we brought his family and we talked about it together, his desire to be home, uh, his concern that if he was home, you know, his six-year-old granddaughter would see him decline and she, he didn't want to see, he didn't want her to see him die. All of these pieces, all these domains, you know, that kind of constitute suffering, the specific state of distress, you know, that occurs when the integrity or the intactness of somebody, the sense of self is threatened or disrupted. And, and so the palliative care team started the conversation, identified the physical issues with uh, pain and symptoms, uh, helped identify the psychological issues with the anxiety about going home, his sense of, you know, lack of control and uselessness, his desire to be independent, his desire to kind of leave a legacy for his daughter, um, the social issues uh, with his uh, partner, they weren't married, um, all, all kinds of family-related stuff. And so we started those conversations, and, and we were able to get a hospice agency to help, to get him home with the realization that when he did get home, we were not going to be able to provide the IV antibiotics as he was getting in the hospital, but that was an understanding that the objective wasn't to hurry the process along, but to get out of the way of whatever the process was going to be. And he realized uh, that his prognosis, we felt, and by the way, we didn't mention this earlier, but doctors don't always know. Um, <laughs> doctors are often wrong. Yes. Um, but we worried that the prognosis was going to be on the order of days to maybe weeks uh, just because of the, the nature of an, his anemia. And so he went home. And he's, he's still there. He's you know deteriorating. They're giving him Tylenol for fevers, and they're making sure his pain is controlled. And they've worked with, uh, with he and his, his partner about... Um, uh, to ensure that the six-year-old, when he does become uptunded or non-responsive, that they, they kind of have a plan in place for that, which is what his biggest concern was. And so it was a nice handoff from a palliative care setting to a goals of care conversation, including the patient and his family, to coordination with a hospice agency, handing off to them, this is the situation, this is what's important to him, this is what we need to pay attention to at home, and then carrying through with that. And Raphael, um, what and you feel... brought up is something that a previous guest, Wes Ely, said, and you flipped it. You, instead of what's the matter with the patient, you asked what matters most to the patient, and you addressed that. I think that's beautiful. And I think, you know, I, I hope and I think that palliative care should do these things to sort of honor the, the, the dignity, the integrity of the patient, their narrative, you know, um, ameliorate where possible the suffering, whether it's physical symptoms or others, um, and I think that at our core as Catholics, that's what we aim to do is to truly see people, to truly appreciate and empathize with the suffering and the distress that accompanies any health change or any end-of-life process. And I feel like Catholics know and can evangelize through our, through our actions, if nothing else, the belief that each one of us is made in the image and likeness of God and, and is a gift to the other. And with this approach, I feel like patients and families should always feel honored um, and precious, like like what we talked about with uh, Pope Francis's comment, um, because they are. And I feel like this should um, th that that this approach will always or, or should always uh, result in the respect for life from conception to death. And we have a little over two minutes for another story. Well, I like uh, this is sort of an ongoing story, uh, contrasting you know uh, contrasting that with the story of a 44 year old lady. Um, she was unfortunately diagnosed with uh, inflammatory breast cancer, which for the listeners is, is um, uh, she was diagnosed with stage four, non-curable inflammatory breast cancer, a more aggressive form of breast cancer than most. And she was capably cared for by a breast oncologist. She was in the hospital multiple times because of symptoms. And that's when they asked us to meet her to help support controlling symptoms. And we got to know her uh, over the course of her um, ER visits and hospitalizations. We saw her in the infusion center when she was getting chemotherapy. We learned about her four children, the struggles that she was having, um, she and her husband were having with the four of them, ages three to 12. Um, just a tragic, horrible situation. Um, and we got to learn about her. And over time, she has become more comfortable with us as this extra layer of support to her. And most recently, she was hospitalized last week. Um, the decision over the course of uh, three failed uh, chemotherapy lines was from her oncologist to forego continued therapy because it was very clear that each time she got uh, treatment, it was much more uh, risky than it was beneficial. She always landed in the hospital. And so it was a very difficult decision, as you can imagine, 44 years old, four children, awareness that it's not a curable issue, and, and what to do, right? What to do from here? And so 
that's when our team um, kind of went to work. We had already met her. We already had sort of a longitudinal relationship for the last few months. She was diagnosed back in April. Um, and our whole point was to seek to build rapport and a longitudinal relationship with her to communicate with her and with her family, to let her family in Mexico know what was going on, to actually talk with her physician, to highlight the concerns that she had with her children and their behavior at school, to talk with the teacher and the social worker, you know, to talk with the husband about his work, to to coordinate, you know, they got married a month ago, and to coordinate when she was still getting chemotherapy, you know, a cessation of chemotherapy the Wednesday before she was to be married so that she would, you know, suspend the issues of nausea. And so we had a wonderful conversation, even though it was very emotional, about what her end of life would be. And so she's chewing on whether hospice is going to be the right fit, whether she can be home. Um, but, but that sort of uh, attention to the person and to the narrative um, is, is where I think medicine should be, but definitely Catholic palliative care. That is a beautiful summary, Raphael. Thank you for being our guest. And thank you, listeners, to listen to this episode of Dr. Doctor, coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Please remember that your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll hear from Dr. Steve White about how the Catholic Medical Association is working to make a positive impact on health legislation in Washington, D.C. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.